This is Bill in Milwaukee. One, two, three. Ingrid and Bill in Milwaukee. One, two, three, four, five. Hi, this is Krista Tippett. Oh. We're here in St. Paul. Hello, Krista. Hi, Ingrid. Have you done this before? No, I haven't. Okay, well, it it's actually, I think it could be off-putting. Um, it's actually quite a good way to have a conversation because you can completely focus on listening. Mm -hmm. I now find having to make eye contact and sitting up straight kind of distracting. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> um, I've been reading your book, and that was your doctoral dissertation also, right? Uh, yes, it was based on it, although afterwards I did spend um, more time in Burma, uh, oh, okay. developing more information for it. Mm -hmm. um, have you heard our program? We're on in Milwaukee. Yes, I have. Okay, good. I have. And do you have any questions for me before we begin? Well, I, I guess I wanted to uh, just talk a little bit with you so that I could feel that we found our own rapport with each other mm -hmm. so that I could feel comfortable finding my own place. I feel like this is a very important opportunity for people to understand about Burma and to understand about the crisis there. So I, I want to find my own voice that's going to allow me and, of course, to talk with you makes that more comfortable. Yeah, well, I think um, I think that's exactly what I want you to do as well. Um, the the real luxury we have here is that this is not live and uh right, I, I did one, one live interview just recently and yeah. that was uh, hair splitting it's <laughs> terrible and so but what it means with this is and i you know we we have um a good amount of time to have a real conversation which also means that it doesn't have to be linear if there's something you mm -hmm. want to come back to um mm -hmm. and i would like to spend some time um as we begin just really hearing more about you and your story you know how you got into all this and and the purpose you know the, what i want to do with this interview is is give people some context um and some nuance to work with because we, we now have these headlines um, but mm -hmm. there's so much of the story that they don't ha tell, right? And, pr and probably a lot right. that I think, as you uh, you say this um, a lot, quite well in your book, that you know we don't even necessarily know what to be looking for to understand mm -hmm. what's important. Right. And so that's what I'd I'd really like to, to talk. You know, I think we will talk about what's happening right now on the streets. But well, more no, that's more important. Yeah, I agree with you. That's precisely the thing that needs to first be yes, understood. Yes, that background. Mm -hmm. And um, okay. Okay, I, my um, my producer wants me to. I want to have you say, say something mundane before we get going. Like, okay. tell me what you had for lunch today. Uh, I had Burmese curry okay. and, uh, <laughs> and rice. So, uh, <laughs> what is Burmese curry? What's different well, about Burmese I, curry? Well, um, I suppose people have likened it to Indian, sort of being between Thailand and India, mm -hmm. so it has uh, the spices of both, but uh, I was, uh, so it's one of my comfort foods, right. so I went to that place. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a restaurant there in Milwaukee? No, no, I cooked it for myself. Oh, okay. Do you bring spices back, or can you find them in this country? Yes, in fact, um, no, you can't find them here. One of the things I try to get while I'm in Burma is pickled tea called la pet. Mm. It's the one thing that you can't get in the United States, <laughs> and it's the only place in the world that makes it. Right. Well, uh, uh, from what I can tell, um, Mitch, can we go? Can we start talking? Okay. All right. Um, do you want me to ask him? Um, can, is Bill in the room, or can he hear yeah. me? We just want to yeah. make sure that... Are you, are you ready for us to go, Bill? We're set at this end. All Bill, right. Can I just ask? I'm sort of leaning forward 
in a, an oh. uncomfortable way. Is there a way to why pull this back a little bit? And I'll move the mic okay. To you. So why don't we just can we do like this? Is that yep. is that all right? Okay. You're comfortable. That's yeah. great. Okay. Okay. Now we're ready. All right. And and also, well, I think you get this intuitively, but but for the for these purposes, I mean, you're I know that when you're writing as an academic, you're you're kind of trying to pull yourself out of the picture, but um, for the purposes here, I think your stories and your experiences. Um, and the way you came to this and what, what interests you um, is, is a right. really important way in for other people. So I it, agree. <laughs> yeah, <and> so <laughs> I sense just from the very beginning of the book where you tell a little bit of, you know, just the first paragraph that, that Buddhism and Burma were, were not part of your life um, until, you, um, until a certain point in your education. Is that right? That's right. I, in fact, it, it didn't come through my education. It came uh, in a completely unexpected way. I was uh, teaching sign language to gorillas with uh, uh, Francine, Dr. Francine Patterson was teaching Coco and Michael. And I became the main person to, to, uh, to be with Michael, the gorilla. And so I spent 12 hours a day just signing to this gorilla. And I was very interested in questions of what the limitations of language were and whether... We could only know things that, that we knew through language. And, uh, and I was pursuing this through um, ape language acquisition. Right. But, du- but during that time, uh, someone gave me, a, as a birthday present, a 10-day meditation retreat. And uh, I, I was, uh, after 10 days, quite impressed by the experience that I'd had. And so I, um, I had kept a notebook during that time, and I came across afterwards, after the retreat, because I went around to look into what it was that was being taught, and, and uh, it was a uh, meditation technique that was taught by Mahasi Sera of Burma. And so I read his book, and I found that my experiences were um, in line with the experiences that he said um, would arise if you practice meditation um, with diligence. What, and do you, what do you mean by that? your experiences? What, what it, the effect it had on you? Is that what you mean? No, it was that um, as you're um, practicing mindfulness, the levels of observation become um, more finely attuned. Mm-hmm. And as you uh, observe things, there are other kinds of insights that arise according to the degree of concentration and mindfulness and awareness that you cultivate. And those insights that um, arise and are systematic, um, the moving one to the next, it was those insights that I experienced and then I found um, labeled for me after the fact. And so being a, having been a student of anthropology, I felt this is quite extraordinary because it's cross-cultural even before I have um, even been in contact with the, with the cultural ideas beforehand. So that made me drop everything. I sold everything that I owned. Not sold, excuse ah. me. I gave everything that I owned okay. away and I moved to Burma. Do you, uh, before we keep going, um, do, do you say Burma now? I know Myanmar is the official name of the country. I notice a lot of journalists moving back and forth. What, what, what should we, should we talk about Burma this hour? Should we talk about yes. Myanmar? No, I think that it is important uh, to use uh, the name Burma. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a couple reasons that um, one should. One is that um, the regime changed the name of the country as a bid to gain Uh, legitimacy in the eyes of the international community. And when they did this um, technique of changing names, Mm -hmm. uh, when they did this, the uh, New York Times, I remember, immediately said, okay, they're called Myanmar now. 
And in the newspapers in Burma, uh, I was there at the time, they were ebullient. The, the military regime wrote in their newspapers how, see, we're considered a legitimate government because the outside calls us by our name. Right. And that was the first moment I realized that they had a lot to gain by being called Myanmar from the outside. Okay. The other reason is that um, while Myanmar is a term that has been that had been used in the past traditionally for the people of uh, Burma, when Burma was a name that had been given by um, British colonialists, um, the, the way in which Myanmar is being used today um, I think uh, has changed enough that we should consider it something quite different because it has been entangled in the efforts by this regime to uh, produce a uh, nation state that has uh, tried to uh, unify the minority elements in a way that's that's quite um, uh, repressive and mm. has been uh, trying to not create a state of, of a collective different groups that come together, but rather a civilization in which uh, Burmese and uh, or Burmans and Burman Buddhism. Burmese Buddhism, mm -hmm. rather, uh, is uh, the organizing and the foremost among all of these. So it's a kind of project which um, they've, they've undertaken that I think should make us pause in using those terms. Kind of gets back to your original intrigue with the power of language, doesn't it, actually? I suppose you're right. You know, um, I mean, what do people in that place, how, what's the word, word they use to talk about their country? Well, as I said, Myanmar was a term that had been used before, mm -hmm. and uh, it's usually used in writing, though, in more formal okay. context. So, um, and Burma is often Burma is often used to refer to the ethnic majority right, Burman which group, which you are often referred to as the Burmans. I've noticed. In mm -hmm. Okay, right, correct. Well, good. All right. Well, then we won't, we'll try not to get hung up on that. So, all right. Mm -hmm. So you gave away everything you had, and you went to Burma. And where did you go? And what did you do? Well, at that time, it was in uh, the uh, mid-1980s. It was difficult to get into Burma. Uh, you could only get in on a one-month visa. And um, so I was moving in and out of the country on these one-month visas. And um, eventually, um, I uh, ordained as a Buddhist nun. And I, um, I uh, stayed at the Mahasi uh, Meditation Center. Is this and the that place was in you refer to as MTY? Uh, Yes, using NTY, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that I was there in 1984 and through 1985, and um, I uh, stayed there um, practicing meditation. What um, wh what goes on there? I mean, that's it's quite a um, a vast <coughs> a vast center, isn't it? And an important place in Burmese culture. It is the um, Mahasi uh, Yekta as I'll call it, is okay. the shortened f version. Uh, uh, the Mahasi Yekta was uh, established uh, in 1947 by the first prime minister of Burma, who was seeking to revitalize the um, Buddha's teachings, the what's called the Sasana, uh, in order to um, be a part of his nation state building project. Mm. And part of the project was to create a place uh, an institution where lay people could meditate for enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a little bit of a departure from the traditional practices where monks were the ones who would depart for the forest and meditate for their own uh, enlightenment. Here, the idea was that we would have um, um, people from all walks of life uh, meditate 
and therefore see for themselves at first hand what the teachings of the Buddha were. And I mean, was that an innovation within Buddhism um, that began in Burma or that took a distinctive form in Burma? It did take a distinctive form in Burma. It's the first time in you know the history of Buddhism that we're you talking had about Theravada Buddhism, of course, which is one in of the Theravada schools, Buddhism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's probably um, y- unique to Buddhism, really, um, in, in all the traditions, mm-hmm. to have an institution uh, that was built for these systematic uh, and and bureaucratically and institutionally developed. Um, organization for uh, just for lay people. Um, mm. I shouldn't say just for lay people. Monks also practiced there, but it was, it was, it was directed at lay people. And so you have at the Mahasi Yekta, you have at any given time, you have 500 people who are meditating together, or you know, at various parts of the of the center. But you have 500 people who are who are involved in the moment to moment meditation um, schedule, which. Uh, goes for 20 hours in a day. You sleep for four hours a day. And what happens? Tell me something about that daily routine then. Well, it, um, uh, if, you, if you are seeing a monk, I'll tell you how it comes from their perspective. Okay. The, monk will, the monk will ask you, um, you'll have interviews every day, and the monk will say, when you woke this morning, did you have your uh, mindfulness on the in-breath or the out-breath? And that's to just tell you the degree to which you're supposed to be observing the whole process by which you're um, in relationship to the experiences of your mind and body. So the, the, the degree of observation that they're um, trying to cultivate there is, is very um, minute, mm-hmm. very refined. And so you have a schedule there that is um, that moves uh, between um, one hour of walking meditation and one hour of sitting meditation. And there are two meals um, in the day. You're, uh, yogis, just like monks, yogis being meditators, uh, just like monks are, are not permitted to eat after midday because um, it, it's a distraction for the project of enlightenment. Um, and uh, so just taking care of the physical body gets done in two meals before midday, okay. and then you turn your, to your meditations after that. Mm. So um, it's a, And then you have, after the meal, you have a little time to, to wash, and then it's back to one hour of sitting and one hour of um, walking meditation until... Um, un- until it's time to rest. And then because you're meditating um, 20 hours a day, I think that you're, um, you're processing so much that you don't need as much sleep mm. um, as you, you do in usual you know, kind of busy, worldly life. Mm. And so four hours is quite adequate uh, for... And um, so how long will I- the individual... You said at any given time there might be 500 people, and, and how long will they stay? Um, Meditators typically at, at Mahasayekta will come for a two-month course. Mm. Uh, that's a, I mean, that's if, if you think about it from our perspective, from this culture, that's a huge chunk to take out of what we would to, call to real be life. In complete <laughs> silence, yes. right? Um, it's it's um, it's uh, what Mahasi, uh, who was the 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 main monk of the center and who systematized these teachings, said was the probably the the minimum amount of time uh, for most people to be able to cultivate enough concentration so that they could generate the 
the, um, the degree of observational awareness that's necessary to start having these insights that come when you, when you practice with real, um, with real uh, intensity. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, just to illustrate that, I mean, can you talk about um, what insights uh, came to you there in that place that were completely new in your experience? Well, I think that there's a. Uh, I think that uh, the I, the word insight can be misleading if we try to translate it directly. Mm-hmm. Um, in in a Western context, we think of insights as somehow uh, telling you something um, that is like an epiphany about right. the world. Right. Um, it's like the light bulb over your head. I think is that's right. right. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. it can be referring to you know everyday worldly things. You have an insight about something, something about humanity, something that is um, something that has a kind of philosophical aspect. The, the level of insight um, that I'm describing is, in many ways, a kind of technical um, insight level that leads to a profound um, underlying sense of recognition um, of, 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 three, um, of three main principles. And I'll, I'll tell you how we get to those principles. Mm-hmm. But first, let me tell you the kind of insight I'm talking about. Okay. So uh, one would be, th- like the first insight would be that you are aware of the fact that uh, things arise and disappear when you're observing the mind, you watch and you see that a thought will arise and then it will disappear. Uh, a sound arises and it disappears. And that first uh, insight level in which you just are observing things, every, everything that comes into consciousness is arising and disappearing. And a kind of uh, your attention is just on the process of things coming and disappearing in your consciousness, that that's the first level of insight. And from that, it leads to another insight that says that there's differences between mind and matter, that Mm. you can see that you have an intention to move your hand, and then there's the moving of the hand, and there's separate actions. Mm. Um, Deepak Chopra said it in a different way, which is, wherever a thought goes, a chemical follows. (laughs) Um, And uh, it it has that kind of insight level. But it's a kind of building uh, of seeing that uh, to- toward leading toward these three ideas that that everything is impermanent mm-hmm. that because they are impermanent there's no soul in anything everything is empty there's just mind and matter happening and because everything is always impermanent uh, f- everything is also um, ultimately sorrowful that there's suffering uh, because you can't hang on to happiness and um, that it is our craving and our desire that has us locked into this cycle of perpetual pursuit of things that are coming to an end. Right. Was it a, unusual for you as, um, as non-Burmese, uh, as an American, to become a nun at that large monastery? Well, um, I think that... Uh, the way that you're um, treated in a context like that is uh, is not really f- first as an uh, as an American. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, uh, I, re I remember thinking how the, the committee, the organizational committee there, used to always try and uh, work out who I must have been in the last life as uh -huh. a member of their committee in the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so there's a sense of, uh, for them, the idea was that uh, it, it was self-evident that I had been a Burmese Buddhist in a past life okay. and uh, that I had now um, uh, come back because um, I had this strong connection here. Mm. And, and what I've read is that it's quite common in Burma that people ta take up monastic orders temporarily for a limited period of time. That's right. You can go in and out of the order mm -hmm. because the purpose is to be cultivating uh, your own um, uh, virtue. And so at various times in your life, you have the opportunity to um, take the time to be in a monastery and to take precepts which require a, a more rigorous uh, attention to your behavioral conduct, your virtuous conduct, and that cultivates a purification of your own mind, uh, an elevation of your own, um, of your own uh, virtue and mental states. And um, so during the, the school year, um, when summer uh, vacation comes around, you'll see that the monasteries fill up with children hmm. um, who will be meditating on this same schedule. And, um, and during the 1980s, it became popular for um, women to also take temporary ordination. Uh, this was sort of precipitated by a famous Burmese uh, a movie star who decided to ordain, and then it became all the rage. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, I think it's probably worth mentioning um, that this, this focus on, I mean, as we, as we just, just uh, very briefly mentioned before, there are different schools of Buddhism, and, and the dominant form um, in, in Burma is Theravada Buddhism, which is kind of classical, traditional Buddhism, which does have... <coughs> a stress on enlightenment through conduct and attained by personal effort. I don't know. Is that the way you would say it? That's right. That's correct, Krista. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of the Calvinism of Buddhism. Yeah, I think in some <laughs> ways um, that, that analogy could be used. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what I think, though, that, that is interesting for me about the, the mass movement um, and while it was supported by the first um, parliamentary democratic government of Burma, um, UNU, uh, who was... Uh, UNU by was the way, that first... Oh, he's a friend of yours, wasn't he? He was a friend of mine. Um, and um, and that he was he the first prime minister after the, um, after after the revolution. Yes, after independence from Britain. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Sorry, I, I think I interrupted your train of thought. I just... Um, uh, Oh, well, so, so in your work, yeah, you talk about this mass lay meditation movement that is very mm -hmm. particular to m modern Burmese history. Right. The, the interesting thing, UNU had uh, made it a decree that, that uh, one person from every village should come and meditate at the meditation center so mm. that he could spread these teachings. And they would be paid a salary to come during this time. Huh. And so the spread of this uh, technique was, was done very systematically in the beginning. He also required that all of the ministers in his cabinet should meditate to a certain degree of insight if they were to remain cabinet members. Mm -hmm. He wanted people to have a very high level of virtue. Mm 
And he also, and this is really remarkable for us, I think, he also um, uh, uh, made it so that people who were in prison for crimes, if they should practice meditation and attain enlightenment, that they should be released from prison because they would no longer be a threat to society. Hmm. And so there was this tradition of practicing um, meditation in prisons. And I think that uh, if we look today, we see that that same tradition is being carried on by the political prisoners. Um, and really? the national Yes, in, in prison today, that they are still um, defiantly uh, undertaking their own, uh, their own path to freedom, even while the government has tried to strip them of every other part of freedom um, that you could have living in the world. Mm. How did you know Unu, this, this former prime minister? Unu I met in the United States when he came to uh, a Northern Illinois University to open a Burma Studies uh, uh, group. <laughs> uh, and uh, we, we immediately connected and spent a lot of time talking during the uh, week that he was there. And later then when I went back to Burma, um, I also uh, spent time with him there. And um, we, I think we had a very... Uh, again, if you if you think in, in 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 Burmese terms, the way that relationships become close are not um, uh, are in a way that somehow fit into um, uh, you might say a kind of um, uh, meta historical or cosmological view of things. Mm. Um, are I think that one of the most um, um, I should say, uh, I, actually, I, I really don't know how to say it. <laughs> I will just say Unu had um, uh, once made a request of me that um, will, tells you some insight about who he was as a man. Mm-hmm. He, he asked me, he, he, he was, after all, someone who had a bodhisattva vow, mm-hmm. um, which, um, w- which I guess a lot of people don't realize that within Theravada Buddhism, there are individuals who will take the the uh, the vow or make the resolve to become a Buddha in the future, out of compassion for 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 all sentient beings, to be able to teach the law of Dharma, which Buddhas um, learn by themselves, and which uh, Buddhas are then able to, through their compassion, uh, share the teachings with others. And he had this Bodhisattva vow, and he made arrangement for us to meet, and he brought. Uh, a uh, Burmese man to stand as witness. And he asked me three times in both Burmese and English if I would resolve, if I would make the vow to become the chief nun in his dispensation when he became a Buddha. Uh. <laughs> and this is something that he felt um, that he would culti- you cultivate this in each life for eons and eons. And so this, this was, a, uh, for me, a very remarkable personal moment yes. uh, in our relationship, but also a remarkable moment about um, to give you insight into this, this person. And his large, large view of time, <laughs> his yeah, cosmology. That's right. Are, and were you a nun at this point? No, at that time I was not a nun. I had already disrobed. Okay. But he knew that about you. He knew that was part That's of your right. story. Um, One of the things people uh-huh. don't realize about Unu um, is, uh, and, and his view of 
uh, he felt that he felt that he was um, at a unique point in history, uh, the halfway time uh, in what is predicted to be the 5,000 years of the Buddha's dispensation, mm-hmm. and he um, therefore felt that he was uh, at a at a uh, watershed point to be able to offer the teachings to the world, and so he of course created this. Um, Sixth Buddhist Council, which was uh, to to review the the accuracy of the text, and this went on for two years and involved uh, the uh, other countries of Southeast Asia, South and Southeast Asia. Um, but um, one of the things he also did uh, is he he spread his enthusiasm and his philosophy of Buddhism um, with other um, world leaders. And I'm right now um, looking at the collected papers of the writings between Ben Gurion and Unu, oh. and they had a remarkable friendship that um, that uh, that um, resulted in uh, Ben Gurion actually traveling to Burma and staying in Unu's house and meditating for a month. <laughs> I've never heard this story anywhere. Mm, yeah, it's it hasn't uh, hasn't been uh, hasn't been out there as something that people know, but it's a remarkable. It's a remarkable understanding about both of those men who were working very yes. hard to understand how to build a nation state um, in the context of a of, of a civilizational religion. Right, because th- and, and I, I wanted uh, you know again to talk about to kind of set Burma in history. I mean, so Unu was creating a nation state um, along Buddhist lines, and in that he was he was really part of this long line of sort of Ashoka, the Ashokan model right. of Buddhism, right? Which and Ashoka right. was the third century BCE, but my understanding is that B- Burma, Buddhism kind of came to Burma through that model. Right. And um, and there there was this large tradition. I mean, how would you describe that? It's excellent that you, you bring that point up about a Ashokan um, Buddhist um, uh, kingship because it's a it's an idea about um, legitimate uh, and moral um, political rule that has never left um, even the generals of today. Right. And and I think that if we understand that, we'll begin to uh, make sense of what uh, some uh, some uh, have called bizarre state-sponsored realism. That this <laughs> right. is is not really bizarre state-sponsored realism so much as um, a uh, a view about what a virtuous king is and a uh, I should say a kind of cat and mouse game of of playing for political legitimacy, which the generals, uh, the military generals, since 1962 have been playing with the Burmese people. But you've suggested, and you know, as you say, a lot of people look at at the rel- the fact there is a relationship between the government and Buddhism in Burma. And let me see, this is a line from a. This is a okay. This is a line from a, um, a a journalist, and I think this is a pretty standard way of analyzing it. That the current military government endorses a very conservative form of Buddhism to legitimize their highly repressive regime. In your work, you know, I, I sense that you are saying it's just more complicated than that. And so I wonder if you would, you know, when you hear a statement like that, take that apart for me, open it up, and help the rest of us understand. At the bigger picture, yeah. there. Yeah, I, I, I think it's easy to only um, uh, use the the black box of tradition and orthodoxy as a way of not having to 
pry into the the meanings of of a of a system that is, as you say, much more complicated. Um, I think the point that I would want to draw out the most is to not um, assume, uh, first of all, that there are monolithic um, uh, communities either within the military or um, within uh, the Burmese people themselves that we can we can sort of um, see that there are different movements that are um, that 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 uh, that are going on. But but I guess uh, to to get to the point is. Um, what I've wanted to, what I've wanted to draw out, is that they haven't that the military rulers, uh, dictators, uh, have not been using Buddhism as a way of mystifying a people who are ready to just gullibly be mystified by by the theater of Buddhist um, uh, presentation that the regime is doing. Right. I think that um, the. Uh, what is more important to ask is why this regime felt compelled to define their legitimacy in Buddhist moral terms. And if you ask the question that way, what you find is that the, the, the laity and the sangha, the monks, mm -hmm. have had a very um, strong effect, a very uh, uh, strong um, ability to define what the terms of political legitimacy would be in Burma. And w we, I think that we can see this because there was a period in which there was a um, socialist uh, government uh, that uh, right. was put into place by Nguyen, who, who who affected the first, who who affected the the uh, the bloodless coup against uh, UNU. Mm -hmm. 1962, and right? In 1962, mm -hmm. and he. Um, the first thing he did was to remove all of the vestiges of Buddhist, um, all the Buddhist trappings from the bureaucracy and from any of the, the institutions of the state. And he realized in the um, mid-70s that um, his, his attempt to, to gain political legitimacy by declaring uh, Burma now a socialist country, that, that it wasn't, it, it didn't have cachet with the people, it didn't work. Right. Because during that time, when he had his hands off of Buddhism, the relationships between the laity and the Sangha became especially strong. And the Masley meditation movement completely took off at that time. Okay. Th that was when suddenly um, people were practicing like they never had before. And I think that what was happening was that uh, in as much as the, the state had now decided to step away from the religion, from, from from the monks, from the Sangha, in terms of supporting them, that laity then went in to fulfill those roles. And they ended up in their centers, in their monasteries, and in their lay institutions, acting as kings who were purging the monks within their own centers if they were not um, maintaining their strict code. And so um, what the regime realized was that they were um, uh, they were missing out on a on a big piece of um, of uh, social um, life that they weren't controlling, and so what happened was Nguyen then set about um, reestablishing himself as a uh, as a Burmese Buddhist uh, ruler, and right. he actually tried to do this in very bizarre ways. He tried to marry the widow 
of um, uh, of a, uh, a a woman who was actually descended from the last kings of Burma. So he would be he would be his chil- he and his children would be physically in that line of divinely ordained kingship. That he would yes, mm-hmm. that this was one of the ways that Buddhist kings, when they had done away with their mm-hmm. opponents, would marry all of you know would marry the the the, the wives of the prior king in order to. Uh, in order to establish their legitimacy. Did he succeed um, in marrying her? Uh, yes, and it, it didn't make any difference. The people just laughed at him. Okay. <laughs> he was, you know, look at this, look at this, you know, peasant who's, who's making all these pretensions. But it didn't matter. He, he went about it in other ways as well. Um, and one of the ways that he did that was to uh, purify, uh, as he put it, one of, the, one of the functions of a king is to purify the monastic order of any... Um, of any uh, unorthodox elements. Now, that was mm-hmm. a terrible period because, of course, he was imprisoning. What um, did that imprisoning. mean? Anyway? He was putting people in prison for he what? Was, um, if you, uh, well, well, a lot of it was a, uh, a way of getting rid of uh, dissenting voices. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and But it was always done in the language of uh, not supporting the the true practices of the Buddha, mm-hmm. um, it, it, so what I mean, and it didn't mean that that people weren't outraged by this. There were I have a, a court case um, of a of a monk who was uh, falsely imprisoned, and he was a very renowned monk. He was sent to hard labor for ten years. And when he came out, the people gathered round and built him a temple and 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 you know paid obeisance to him, and he became even more more popular. Mm-hmm. And so there's this constant um, there's this constant way in which people are asserting their own, uh, but that moral communities are asserting their own resistance against the government's claim to be first and foremost in their support of the religion, and also to be quite skeptical of what their actions really mean. So I mean, so gradually, um, the government of Nguyen did incorporate. Uh, patronage of the monasteries, is that correct, and relationships with the religious communities into their kind of public profile? I mean, it, I don't know, maybe that's not... Well, I would, I would describe it this way. Okay. Um, if y- The way that Burmese talk about, uh, I'll tell it to you first in a joke, um, it, when we talk about having television sets that are black and white, in Burma they joke their television sets are green and gold. And the reason they say green and gold is because all the military dressed in their military khaki uniforms are always making offerings, in, you know, offering to the temples the golden pagodas. Right. Uh, this, is, this is broadcast every day, two and three hours. We have <sighs> pictures of the, the generals making uh, donations. Uh-huh. And what this is... Um, what this is supposed to show is that, you know, of course, that they're legitimate uh, supporters of the religion. Um, but for the for for the ordinary citizen, uh, they they're not fooled by this. And in fact, the water pouring ceremony that is done after a donation uh, it, traditionally is called uh, taking bribes. Um, mm-hmm. The reason being that um, when a m- these monks, uh, excuse me, when these military men make donations, it's not often even their own money that they're donating. What they do is they corral um, uh, people and um, uh, often 
people who are uh, beneath them in a chain of, of, um, of uh, patron-client ties, I should say, or, or mm -hmm. military people who are um, below them. And they dock their salaries. Um, to, to work in the, the uh, civil service, you have your salary docked of a certain amount so that you can make donations. Um, but you make donations together as a group with these military heads. So then what happens is that the military head is uh, the one who is supposed to get all of the merits for these acts of donation. For the, other now, for the effort of others. That's right. Mm -hmm. And um, this is not insignificant. This is where the part uh, uh, of the cynicism um, needs to be evaluated mm -hmm. because, because they are still making merit. They're still getting benefit. Right. You mm -hmm. don't want, you're not ready to say, or you suggest also that, I mean, you've said that, there's, that the debate internally in Burma is always uh, centers around this idea of sincerity. And mm -hmm. uh, that there's a notion in Buddhism of right intention, and that it seems it sounds to me. I mean, you're, you're kind of moving towards that now, and the way you describe internal discussions is that people don't necessarily dismiss the idea that there might be some right intention going on. Is right. that right? Or maybe, or that something is really happening just in the act of of those. That's the best way to put it, Krista. Okay. That something is happening. Um, even if you have a wrong intention, there's a saying that um, if you have wrong intention and you give the amount of a banyan tree, you'll only get back a banyan seed. And if you give a banyan seed and you have great intention, right intention, you'll get back the amount of a banyan tree. Hmm. So this idea of intention is extremely important. But in either event, you're still getting something back. Okay. And I'd like to give you a, 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 slight, a small story that will illustrate this. It's something that happened in 1988 when I was there during the demonstrations. I happened to be staying, uh, this was in, uh, when the, the military, uh, uh, the, the present government took power after right. a democrac democratic uprising was suppressed and thousands were killed, unarmed demonstrators. And this is, uh, that's why you hear in the news uh, 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 the comparisons to that event. Um, at that time, I happened to be staying with someone who was the doctor uh, of St. Lewin, who was also known as the Butcher of Rangoon because mm -hmm. he had killed so many people mm -hmm. uh, in that previous spring in Rangoon. And he uh, was uh, running up to the time before 8888, or just before the, while all of these things were happening, before the big demonstrations, he was going around town uh, in a very um, formal way, and he was uh, making offerings to monasteries, and he was um, meeting with astrologers. And uh, my, my friends who, who were his doctor were, said that he was having heart problems during this time, so he was attending to him quite regularly and was able to give me the story that on his street, he had military people close uh, the street down and shutter the windows of all of the houses on the street. And he dressed up in the full regalia of a Burmese Buddhist king. And these costumes are hundreds of pounds. They're huge um, mm. costumes, and he, or, he, or 100 pounds, I should say. It's, it's, and he, he stepped seven steps outside of his house, and he waited for a sign. And the rumor in Yangon was that the, there was an unseasonable clap of thunder, and this was a sign that surely he would come to power. 
So this was a rumor that was going around. Right. And he did come to power, but he only stayed in power for 17 days. And where did he go after? He went to the Mahasi Yekta. To the monastery. To the, to the monastery for <laughs> meditation. Uh-huh. And because he was a VIP, he stayed in the VIP room, which was also the foreign male yogis center. And I had a friend, a Swedish friend, who was there meditating at the same time. And he said that he watched as St. Lewin would undertake with complete devotion his meditation. And he would, he would take mosquitoes out from underneath his mosquito net and release them with the gentlest of care. And so what I think this shows us is that um, there is a kind of balancing of your your merit book that is going on, a kind of calculus where you could be, you could kill enough people to be called the butcher of Rangoon and then, or of of Yangon, and then the next moment you can be trying to make up for all your bad deeds by, by undertaking pious acts. I mean, you also tell the story in your book that you once found yourself in the office of a man who simultaneously held the titles of Director of Home and Religious Affairs and Director of Military Intelligence. Right. It's that juxtaposition that's kind of Mm mind-boggling from the outside. I mean, is it mind-boggling for people inside Burma as well? No. No? Um, I I think that that we, we are a little bit preoccupied with the the classification of where the secular and where the religious uh, uh, should uh, um, be, you know, find their borders with each other. Yeah. Um, but but I think that um, that we need we need to look at um, the the entire context in which um, uh, political legitimacy is made there, and understand that um, that the the actions by the junta. Uh, of course, are cynical, um, and and people aren't oblivious or 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 naive to that. But at the same time, they do believe that um, by having access to the to the sangha, by having the ability to to make these great donations, to refurbish the pagodas, to be able to give to the monasteries, um, in fact, causally keeps them in power. Mm. Um, that's why mm. the actions in the recent period are so um, uh, alarming and why I think that um, I think the regime uh, has really turned the corner. Well, tell, uh, tell me what you mean by that. What's, what's different that's happened now? The, I think the biggest thing that, that changed from 88 till now is that we've had visual images coming out of the country and that's helped uh, a lot in also informing Burmese domestically about what's going on. You can't believe how uh, repressive uh, the environment is to be in Burma. Mm -hmm. Whenever I'm there, I'm followed by military intelligence. Um, And uh, if I'm speaking with someone and I want to turn to maybe something slightly political, they quickly look one side at the next, or they may, if we're in a room, start pointing to different places in the room where the room might be bugged. And so there's this sense that you're constantly under surveillance, and, and you are. Yeah. Do you, um, um, if you read the book, seen the book Finding George Orwell in Burma? 
Yes, by Emma Larkin. Yes, uh-huh. which is, uh, mm-hmm. she's actually anonymous. That's a pseudonym. Um, right. She says that, and it's very interesting to me that George Orwell was actually stationed in Burma as a British officer before mm-hmm. he became a writer. And she said that people in Burma refer to him as the prophet. And is that, is that also yeah. your experience? Yeah, there are many things that, that, that he observed, I think, that um, that, that truly he, he uh, understood about repressive regimes such as this and where they could go. Hmm. So, so again, what is, so it is incredibly repressive, and it has been for some time. So why do you think that perhaps a corner is being turned now? And I mean, what, what kind of corner? What's different? I think that uh, in as much as since 88, 1988, the military junta has tried to secure its legitimacy in Buddhist terms, they have really put so much effort into looking like virtuous kings or virtuous rulers that once you've shed the blood of a monk, once you have gone to their monasteries and taken the heads off of their Buddha statues to raid them of their jewels and to and to to imprison the the lay supporters and the, the even the young monks five years young uh, little apprentice monks mm. to take them all and to um, put them into a into these detention centers are you talking about now be, right now mm-hmm. today there are 1900 of uh, these people who are said to be held um, and for a while they're being held in um, the uh, 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 the college, uh, they, they have a, a, in, the, in the huge compound, they were holding them there. Um, but the monks w- uh, who refused to accept the alms from the military, uh, they um, were continuing their, their, um, their resolve to keep the alms bowl turned over. And I think I'm moving around now. I, I'm, no, I no, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot made of the fact that that monks, the monks who who took to the streets um, in September, were mm-hmm. were turning their alms bowls over, and th- mm-hmm. and and what what did that mean, um, not just to the rulers, but to the Burmese people who were watching it? Um, one thing that I'd like to just uh, clear up is mm-hmm. is is a possibility for. Um, creating a uh, a hard assumption that this was a political act, and of course it has political ramifications. And of course, in some sense, you can say it's it, some might say that it's just purely political. But I think that one has to uh, to recognize that within the the Buddhist sangha, there is only one act that is permitted by their rules of conduct. And that is patam nikujana kama, the turning over of the bowl. And it's the proper response of the sangha as the ultimate, the penultimate rebuke of laity when they threaten the teachings of the Buddha or threaten to split the sangha. Mm. Um, And so in a sense, when um, I think that uh, we ought recognize that um, by turning over the bowl, that they were rebuking the very foundations of the way in which this regime was trying to claim it had the moral authority to rule. That historic uh, connection. To That's right. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that that makes it more difficult uh, after this, uh, this crisis settles down in whatever way. It will make it uh, impossible for them to return to the everyday forms of legitimacy making mm. and seeking that they had been doing. Monks have been killed before and tortured and imprisoned by the government. Didn't some of that happen also in 1990 after Aung San Suu Kyi won the election and, and then exactly. was, not, was denied power? That's exactly right. 130 monasteries were raided, and at least 300 monks were forcibly disrobed. They were arrested, they were imprisoned, they were tortured. Um, at that time, and this is, uh, I think, again, I come back to... Um, it's not that people accepted that at this time, mm-hmm. but I also think that the um, the fact that we have more information flowing out of the country and therefore also back into the country right. um, that that has that that has made a big difference. I think that uh, more people have seen in in a very visceral visual way uh, what took place, and that's going to make it very difficult to just claim that there were some monks who were being political and therefore were n- had now made themselves ineligible to be members of the Sangha. Okay. Uh, in other words, they, the, the military uh, s- spun the, the, the discussion of, uh, of which monks were, were being involved in a way that made them look like they were what they call men in yellow robes, not really monks, fake monks. Mm. So that discourse was going on. But I also would like to point out, and this is interesting, in 1990 when they turned the bowl over, there were two monks that were shot and two civilians because they wouldn't accept the alms. The the monks were refusing to accept the alms of the military. And uh, as I said, all of these these kinds of uh, arrests and so on. But a remarkable thing happened. The wives of many of the military men refused to cook for them (sighs) until they would apologize to the Sangha. Because they were also cut off. They were also cut off from the from the from the sangha from mm-hmm. being able to offer them each day. Did they apologize? I don't think they did. <laughs> um, I, you know, as you said, it's very important when people in the West are watching something like this by way of just headlines and pictures to to realize that, the, as you said, the borders between the sacred and the secular are drawn differently in other cultures. Um, I also think, as I've been reading about Burma as an, and as I listen to you, it's not just Buddhism that's at play in Burma. It's, there's a mix of animistic and indigenous traditions, right? And I mean, I don't know what we would right. call superstition, and I don't know if that's the right word because it sounds demeaning. Um, but, for example, you talked about, who was it, Lewin? The butcher of Rangoon, yes, yes, mm-hmm. who walked out and waited for the lightning to strike, and then mm-hmm. this was quite amazing for me to read that that General Naywin, um, who who was the leader um, who who took over from the original prime minister, um, created the military government. Um, that that the August 1988 protests actually were sparked when he, tell me if this is right, decided to invalidate currency notes that were not divisible by nine. <laughs> That's right. And that people's life savings were wiped away. That's right. And not only that, but the people who found out in Yangon first moved up north quickly and bought for, gave all of their, their bad money to buy land. And people were, were lost things overnight because once the next day they found out that the currency was no longer valid, 
they were just out their land and the money. And, and I mean, the, you the s- nine yeah. was an auspicious number. Right. And so his astrologer had told him that this was. And it's not just that government. The, the, uh, the, uh, the, this regime also changed, as we'd spoken about changing the name. Mm-hmm. Another reason they changed the name was that astrologers said that uh, Burma, Burma was an inauspicious name for this regime to keep. And that if they changed their name to Myanmar, that the bad karma would follow the old name and they would be able to have uh, a new take on things. But even the demonstrators in 1988 um, staged that on August the 8th, 1988, Mm -hmm. 888, because they Mm -hmm. imparted meaning to the number eight. Mm -hmm. It's true, and I I have to say it was funny when I asked people at the time when I was there at that time in 88, and they just completely scoffed and sa- it was it was during the Reagan era and they said they completely scoffed and said well Nancy Reagan is listening to reading her horoscope every day <laughs> so I don't know why you're <laughs> why you're why you're making a special point about us using astrology but, um, but yeah and uh, then I also think when you said a moment ago and I mean this is very serious that that there's a cynicism that people have about the regime the military junta paying respects and donating and funding um, religious activities. And there's a sense that even though their intentions may be false and, and, and a knowledge that they don't live up to Buddhist, to standards of virtue, that, that in that act of doing something, something redemptive still happens. And to me, you know, I don't know then where the line between Buddhism and cultural, again, this word superstition think, is coming to yeah, mind. I think that yeah, superstition um, uh, is not fine enough grained. I think is there a, better a, better way, a better way to think of it is if you consider um, the cosmology of this civilization in which Buddhism is asserts the law of Dhamma, the law of truth, the way things are, the law of causality, of moral truth. Mm -hmm. And within that is an idea that there are 32 planes of existence, um, and one one realm of existence is animals, um, ghosts, hell realms, um, uh, 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 heavenly heavenly realms, celestial realms, um, and the idea that uh, the things that you do will create the causal conditions for bringing about your future existences mm-hmm. because the law of karma um, uh, asserts that you uh, haven't removed the conditions uh, which keep you cycling through uh, samsara, the world, of, uh, the world of existence, the cycles of existence. And um, within that framework then, if you imagine you're trying to describe the horizons of the you know, entire universe, that the the laws of causality then can be played with in different ways. And one way in Burma is through uh, the wakesas or the wizards. Mm, and right. they sort of are the dark side of the Dhamma, sometimes using alchemy or using astrology. And that is trying a school of Buddhism or a line, lineage? It's not, it's not a school of um, Buddhism. It's, um, it's, it's more a kind of practical arts that okay. tries to draw on the principles okay. of causality. And, and so, so the idea, that, and of course it's syncretic, it, it's a blend with other kinds of um, animist practices which have been on the ground in Burma, um, beliefs about, um, about spirits attached to, uh, to, to place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Dreaming. Uh, and, yeah. And yeah, so mm-hmm. these, these, um, 
all of these traditions um, or these forms of knowledge uh, uh, e emerge in in uh, various spheres, and they they cross over. So. Um, a, a Buddhist um, may also be concerned about things like the auspiciousness of numbers or the okay. auspiciousness of their names um, or um, and so on, but also that these uh, military uh, these military people have also gone about trying to secure their power also through uh, through uh, this kind of wizarding. Uh, process as well, mm -hmm. so not just using the Dhamma, not just using uh, the, the the Sangha and the Sasana as a means for trying to secure the, the terms of their own power. So, um, and I, you know, I think it's important to point out right now in our conversation that this tradition is also very meaningful for you, that it has been meaningful for you, that you were a nun um, in Burma, a Buddhist nun, and mm -hmm. And that you take it seriously, and it sounds uh, to Western ears just very foreign mm -hmm. and confusing and strange. Um, yeah, for me, it is. Um, it, it's it's a uh, very logical approach or philosophy to trying to understand what has always been, I think, the orienting question in my life, which is. How do we know things, and how do we know truth? Mm. And the ways of practicing meditation are directed at having us explore the only place that we come into contact with the world, which is through our six sense doors. Mm. And so for me, first analyzing the very perceptive tools that we use to form concepts about the world, to make sense of the world, to determine when something is true or not true. Um, I felt that that had to be investigated at the most fundamental level, and meditation permitted that. Mm -hmm. I guess something I've wondered about as well, just um, we mentioned that book, uh, Emma Larkin's book, Finding George Orwell in Burma. Something she mm -hmm. wrote uh, is that Unlike, I think, because I spent time behind the Iron Curtain, you know, in the old Soviet mm -hmm. Union and East Germany, and a lot of the descriptions of life in Burma and the network of informants just reminds me mm -hmm. so vividly of those places. But what I hear is that unlike those places where the oppression was etched on people's faces, it was in the air, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I hear that Burma is still nevertheless a place where people go and say it's lovely and and the people seem so happy that there's a mm -hmm. there's a peacefulness mm -hmm. um, and I've wondered I guess whether those very virtues of Buddhism that that help people live contemplatively um, and with an equanimity and a compassion with you know, facing suffering and sorrow head on, which is what, what Buddhists do, what meditation mm -hmm. helps people do. Um, and also seeing it as transient. You talked about that at the beginning, seeing it all as impermanent. Whether that in some way um, also um, enables this oppression to, to go on because um, people don't struggle against it. Now, I want to say that and not be seeming to make a judgment call between whether, you know, perhaps it's mm -hmm. a wonderful gift for them that they have these methods 
a staying sane? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm kind of struggling with a big question. No, I, I, there, there are two questions there. Mm-hmm. Um, one has to do with apathy and the question about revolt. Right, right. And the other question has to do with how do you, um, um, how do you maintain uh, a kind of equanimity in the face of, of a repressive and violent, a most violent regime. And one has to remember that the people are very close to the monks, and the monks continually give discourses to the laity. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of discourses that they're giving them are discourses having to do with uh, finding the mental st- strengths, the, the, the mental states that they can cultivate in order to be in relationship to whatever hardship comes up in their life. And that uh, if, if, uh, if their karma is to uh, receive all this suffering, then their salvation is being able to be in relationship to that suffering with patience, with fortitude, with compassion, with loving kindness. And that that's where you cultivate, uh, that's where you cultivate your freedom. Mm-hmm. And that it's really where we all cultivate our freedom, is in our relationship to life, not the things that are given to us in life. Right. And so many times people would say, with patience we can, we can forbear. Um, with patience, you know, we can, we can undertake all of this suffering. And so I, I know that um, it, it reminds me, because I've been thinking a lot about our own response here in the West, yes. uh, where we uh, feel that, we, um, that that kind of suffering is very far away. And we may often feel that uh, apathetic ourselves. What can we do about it? Mm-hmm. And I've been wondering how we can make a difference you know, it's interesting that at this time in our history, we have more governments that are crushing their own people than we have governments fighting other governments. Mm-hmm. And I think mm. that we need to consider the ways in which we can uh, bring about peaceful change uh, in these kinds of situations. You mean promote within societies? Within yeah, to promote mm-hmm. peaceful change within countries mm-hmm. where oppressive rulers um, terrorize their their citizens, um, because I think that the the ways that we've thought we needed to approach them, waiting for armies, United Nations armies, or, right. or <laughs> waiting for someone else to come and do the hard work that will always be violent, which inevitably um, just pr- promotes another wave of of um, of grievances and blood debts mm-hmm. and, and chaos and, and violence. Mm-hmm. It's like Martin Luther King said, an, an eye for an eye will make the whole world blind. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm feeling that we need to find new strategies. And the ways that, um, that the Burmese have undertaken the everyday strategies to everyday life and mm-hmm. everyday suffering um, I think draw on a number of the cultivation of a number of, of key mental states, and one of them is compassion. Right. And compassion is known in Buddhism as one of the four sublime states of mature emotion. Mm. And with compassion, a person feels inclined to show special kindness to those who suffer. Compassion permits us to perceive pain and torment and suffering in another living being. But the thing that's interesting, and this is something that my 
Burmese monk teacher uh, said to me, is that with a mental state, any mental state that's wholesome, but with a mental state such as compassion, there's always um, a near enemy to compassion. And the near enemy of compassion is sorrow. Mm. What's interesting about sorrow is that you're unable to do anything on behalf of another person's suffering. And compassion, on the other hand, allows you to feel that there is something that can be done. Mm. And so I feel that um, we need to cultivate here in the West, if we talk about apathy, our own mental states that um, don't permit us, at least right now, during this crisis, in this moment, um, that if we feel outrage, that we realize that that response will create anger and only more hatred So you're saying we recognize our outrage also as akin to another possible reaction. Well, I'm saying that when we have that, if Mm -hmm. we have a, if we have a, if our response to the crisis in Burma today is outrage, Mm -hmm. then we're responding with anger. And the results of anger is leading to more anger. What would you and if we feel mm-hmm. disappointment and hopelessness, then the response is sorrow and pity and apathy again. Mm-hmm. But if we have compassion, and, and, and if we choose to cultivate mental states of, of truly um, uh, uh, the understanding of what it means that's, that another being is suffering the way that they are in Burma, then, then I think that we'll undertake a kind of, a kind of renewed... Um, uh, activism toward making uh, the case of Burma something that just doesn't disappear off the yeah. off the newsways right. because we have also become ap- apathetic. When the most terrible pictures go away. All right. Well, That's right. Let, tell me that you know, and I think part of that problem is that um, it is so far away, uh, and we we only see those terrible pictures it's it's hard to be compassionate we don't in a way have enough information or enough of a human face to to feel that compassion perhaps so mm. what i would want to ask you is um you know what i wonder what in these days as you've been watching all that and having these thoughts you know what people have you been remembering what experiences have been going through your mind that you might want to share to give the rest of us some other pictures as we, as we ponder our response. Over the years, I, I, in the times that I've spent in Burma, I've, I've watched how fearful people are. There is, it, it's very difficult to take action in a place where y- you really, you really are being watched at every moment and you're, uh, you can easily disappear in the night. And I've, I've watched how people have, have instead turned to a, a kind of uh, elevation of their, of their way of being in the world hmm. to, 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 to say that they are, uh, I- in a sense, um, pursuing their, their life in a way that is meant to to cultivate the very highest aspect of their humanity. I, I, I read recently in South Okalapa in Yangon where they, where they went into the monasteries and they, they bludgeoned the monks, they beat them, they hit their heads against the wall, they, they destroyed the, the, the monastery and they took away the, the lay the lay uh, kapiyas or um, uh, monks' attendants. Um, 
And in that part of Yangon I read two days ago, they, they staged a small protest. They turned off their lights for 15 minutes. And that moved me so much because the whole idea of plunging yourself into darkness as the last moment, the last thing that you can do to resist a regime that's going to use all of its force against you, mm -hmm. and yet you'll still resist giving them any piece of legitimacy. You'll still cry out that someone will see, that someone will notice. That kind of courage I I is something that's, that's so rare, something that we can't fully appreciate because we, we, we don't live with that total that total oppressive environment. Mm -hmm. It's also, um, it's a very different way of, um, of resistance and revolt than would come to us in the West. Mm -hmm. You know, I think people would hear what you're saying and say, it's intolerable that that happens. And, um, and, you know, you were talking about people gaining inner freedom, but I, I think you know, a Western reaction would be, you know, the only way to freedom is to rise up. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think maybe people here would feel hopeless, like even that kind of gesture couldn't make a difference. But think about the kind of difference it would make if we decided in the international community that the way to deal with repressive regimes was to have the entire community work together to say, we don't accept this. Right now, everything is not lost in Burma. We're at a key moment. I really believe that if we kept attention on Burma and if we kept pressure so that India and China, that, that the United Nations would work with the United Nations, that the ASEAN nations this morning, Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore, put in a very strong bid to uh, negotiate, to have China and India negotiate strongly uh, against this regime so that they would work toward nat uh, national reconciliation. That if enough people push the big giants to move, if we say that we really demand that the world not be a place where uh, peaceful protests get responded to in these violent ways mm -hmm. and that a, a, a truly illegitimate government I is not allowed to stand, that we, if we keep that pressure up, then the rest of these governments will have to act. And, and I believe that we have that moment here, and that's why we all need to take action. We really can make a difference. Um, you've noted in your work that, the, that the, this Burmese military government is, is distinctly unre has been distinctly unresponsive to the kind of pressures of international standards, of... Uh, you know, issues like human rights um, that increasingly belong to a globalized world and that other governments have to at least pretend to be responsive to. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Why have they been so oblivious to that? Is, you know, is there something in that culture? Um, and, and can you imagine that changing? Because that, that would have to happen, too, in order for yeah, what well you're talking about to affect I think the most effect. important thing is to realize that um, they haven't worked because... Uh, because Burma has been essentially cut off from the world since 1962. Mm -hmm. They're not dependent 
on the outside world. The, I think we cannot assume that strategies that have been successful in one place of the world will necessarily be successful here. Sanctions, for example, which is um, what have been uh, considered to be our best strategy, uh, may have brought down apartheid in South Africa, but it won't work by itself in Burma. Mm -hmm. And this is because the military regime has demonstrated since 1962 that it's willing to withdraw into its own shell, and that's essentially renounce the political, social, and more importantly, economic discourse with the international community. And so I think that you know we have to we have to find uh, different strategies, and that um, I think that you know making uh, uh, people. Uh, 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 put pressure on their own governments, and in this case, especially uh, India and China, mm -hmm. we have an opportunity, um, will we'll really make the difference for Burma. What, would it, what, might, what might be different about the way just regular citizens uh, watch what's happening in Burma and respond to it, or governments respond? What, what might be different in the way that response is formulated, or, or more helpful if people understood this this connection between Buddhism and and government um, and history in Burma. What do you wish I'm people knew that that might help? Uh, I mean, and we've been talking about that all hour. I think, mm, but yeah. Um, one thing I would like them to know is that the monks' actions um, are not a, a bald-faced political action, because once you um, from their perspective, that mm -hmm. is. And um, the, the reason is that's important, I think, is that we need to see what it is that they're trying to accomplish. The, the, when I write about the mass lay meditation movement, I'm talking about uh, a movement that has attempted to build society, uh, a moral society, from the grassroots up. And they have done this by trying to create literally, an enlightened society. Mahasi Yekta claims to have over a million people who've practiced and experienced enlightenment. Mm. It's the center you and went to. Yes, mm -hmm. and the, the idea of, um, of practicing for enlightenment is, in the words of Upandita, the ultimate gift that you can give to another person because you give them the freedom from fear, mm. because that person will never... Um, break their precepts, and their precepts are um, not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to take intoxicants, and not to uh, adulter. Mm. And those are the precepts that are unbreakable after you become enlightened, according to these teachings. So what they've tried to do is they've tried to morally rearmor their society, mm. you could say, mm. and um, do this without the government. The government has had to follow, which is why they've had to engage in this discourse right. of virtuous legitimacy in Buddhist terms. But even the, the book that, uh, and the, the, those words, Freedom from Fear, were the, the title of Aung San Suu Kyi's book. Yes, yes. And uh, I think that she must have gotten that from Upandita, my teacher, but also her spiritual advisor, mm -hmm. um, who very much had an influence on her in when she uh, started meditating with him and, and learning more about Buddhism herself. And I, I think that is really helpful because I think just beginning to understand that, to look for that, could 
change the way um, even governments f- formulated ideas about how outsiders could support meaningful change in Burma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think also to realize that the 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 outpouring, the the demonstrations that that we see, um, that they're not even in the first instance, the first instance, an appeal for democracy. They're first an appeal for humanity. Mm. The monks are are um, undertaking this because they have so much compassion for the people who are starving. Mm-hmm. Um, and who can't even make offerings to the monks, which means, of course, that the monks are starving. Mm-hmm. There are monks, in, you know, who, who can't even eat even one meal a day. You know, just a little skimming of the, the, the water off of the top of the rice gruel mm-hmm. is, is all they can get. And so they're, you know, in a country that has so many rich natural resources um, and uh, that, that was at the time of independence was considered to be the rice bowl of Asia, to have it be so so destroyed economically to the uh, enlargement of the general's own mm-hmm. uh, luxurious lifestyle is is, uh, is is completely immoral and and in the eyes of the Burmese and in the eyes of the monks, uh, you know it, it can't it, it can't stand anymore. This is first, you know, against the against the regime, and the second part about uh, it being a uh, a cry for democracy is that, and we saw this very beautifully and symbolically demonstrated in the early uh, demonstrations in in September, in late September, when the monks filed by Aung San Suu Kyi's house and stopped there and chanted loving kindness meditation. Mm. And she came out and was permitted to stand at the gate and pay homage to the sanghas. And in that moment, they were symbolically conferring their uh, uh, legitimacy to her mm. as the, the, the true leader of Burma. Mm. And in that sense, you find where the apolitical acts of monks can become political assertions for legitimacy that, that play in, in other arenas. Well, I think this is great. I think I've um, I've kept you going a long time. Are you anything yeah, thank else behind the glass? No. I I hope you I just I just like to say one one y- last yes, phrase. Yes, please do. Please do. Which is that I would like um, for us to remember Aung San Suu Kyi's plea, which is to please use your liberty to promote ours. Mm-hmm. I, this is wonderful. I it's been very helpful for me and. Um, and I think it will help other people. And so I'm just delighted to find you and glad that you well, made the time you. to do this. Thank you. I'm, I'm very grateful that you're as skillful uh, an interviewer as you are. <laughs> and you. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. We'll let you know what's happening with this. And uh, I think you've been in touch with um, Shiraz. Shiraz. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear from him again. Thank okay. you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.